I'm Mike Sheridan, and this is The Dell. Hey folks, you're very welcome along to another episode of The Delve with me, Mike Sheridan, brought to you as always by our friends at Spotlight Oral Care. If you use the code DELVE25 at checkout, you'll get 25% off all of their amazing products and they're available all over the globe. So log on, have a butcher's and order yourself some fine tooth care and products. Probably not a phrase, but whatever. Anyway, my guest today is Ambassador John Bolton, who's the former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump in the Donald Trump White House. He has previously worked for uh, both George Bush Sr. and Jr. and worked as part of the Reagan administration. He's in the news a lot lately because he wrote a book, The Room Where It Happened. So this has been all over the news cycle for the last couple of weeks. There was a court case. There was a lot of stuff going on there. Trump didn't want some of the stuff coming out. I'm sure you've seen it. If you pay attention to American politics at all, you will have heard about it. It's a very dense, detailed book. And we talk about that. I think uh, Ambassador Bolton very much wanted to, to wanted it to appear as a historical document. So there's a lot in there on policy. There's a lot in there for the reasons behind his decisions. And there's a lot of insight because Ambassador Bolton, as the title says, was in the room while a lot of these decisions were being made. So it's a little bit of a shorter episode this week. Normally we go 25, 30 minutes. This one is a little bit shorter, um, but I think it's a fascinating chat nonetheless. So please enjoy my conversation with Ambassador John Bolton. How are you and how's your family, first of all? How's everybody doing over there? Well, this is uh, family's safe and uh, we're uh, taking the precautions everybody advises, but it's, uh, it's a difficult period. How about for you? Not too bad. It's not too bad. We've just lifted. Everything is lifted up here pretty much. So within, with the exception of a couple of restrictions, it's pretty much life as you were. And I'm a, I'm a freelance journalist, so I'm kind of just sitting around at home a lot of the time anyway, as you can imagine. Um, but congratulations on the success of the book, uh, Ambassador. Well, thank you very much. It's an incredible first week that you've had. My copy arrived last week, just, just, to, just so you can actually see I did, I did buy a copy. Um, it's a fascinating read. And it's, it's quite a dense read as well. Um, there's none of the salacious stuff that we've seen from previous books. Uh, what has the feedback been that you've gotten personally, maybe not necessarily from those in politics or those in media? Well, it's, uh, it's been varied. A lot of people are uh, critical because of what I say about Trump, uh, Trump supporters, obviously, in that category. Uh, others on the other side thought that uh, uh, they wanted to impeach and impeach Trump and remove him from office that way that that failed and they're they're unhappy about that but I've gotten a lot of uh, comments from people who say that uh, they find themselves in much the same position I do they're lifelong Republicans Uh, many as I did voted for Trump in 2016 but uh, now find it unable to vote for him for re-election so I've gotten a lot of great comments from the press, especially who say, "Wow, now we understand what was going on on this issue or that issue." But I really wrote the book uh, first for the for the American people. If you can't talk about a president's character and competence during an election campaign, I don't know what the appropriate time is. Uh, but also for history, because uh, when you have the uh, opportunity, really the honor to serve in a, a position like I had in the administration. For the people who are never going to be in the room where it happened, explaining to them what goes on, I think is important so that they understand uh, what's right and what's wrong about their government. And it helps them 
get an appreciation for for what happens in Washington, which may be a good or a bad thing from their perspective. But if you don't explain it to people, uh, it sounds more mysterious than it probably is. You you spoke you speak as well in the book about your first impressions of the Trump White House and. Obviously, you've you, you worked for Reagan. You've worked for both Bushes as well. When you, and you talk about how when you when you first went into the White House and you were going back and forth for meetings and such, that it felt almost like a college dorm, for want of a better phrase. Was that something that felt foreboding to you, to you, or did you just think this is just going to be a different kind of presidency? Well, I was certainly very surprised by it. Um, the the uh, the White House is a high pressure environment uh, uh, in any administration. Uh, decisions that get made there obviously are difficult. If they were easy, they never would have made it that far. They would have been decided lower down. Um, and it's, uh, in my experience, whether it's Reagan or the two Bushes, it's been pretty tightly disciplined. Uh, there's too much work to do to fool around and get distracted. Um, but the Trump White House in the early days, uh, as you say, and I describe in the book, like a college dorm, uh, people kind of coming in and hanging around and then leaving, and no sense of uh, direction or purpose. Uh, and I came to see uh, that, that that really was the way Trump functions. He comes in every day and, and decides what's going to happen. Uh, I thought over time that uh, the pressures of the job, the gravity of the decisions a president has to make would help put more of an order and a, and a uh, regularity uh, uh, in place. And that obviously didn't turn out to be true. I, in the national security space where I, I've spent my uh, time, uh, that's particularly disturbing because uh, decisions uh, by a president in any field have consequences. In the foreign policy and defense field, they can be mortal if they're wrong. So uh, to me, watching this chaos was, uh, was sort of hard to understand. And you talk as well, I think, very early on in the book about the access of adults, where you would say you would hear stuff coming out of the White House about um, how people were handling Trump. Like you hear about, I know Bob Woodward wrote about it in his book, and Fear, about how Porter, how Rob Porter would literally remove like executive orders from Trump's desk and he would forget about them. Was that something that you were hearing while you were uh, preparing to go into the White House? Like, were, were, were staff members actively talking about this was, as, as much as they are now? Well, certainly there were a lot of stories about it, and I, I didn't think that was the right way to perform either. The, the Constitution's very clear. The executive power is vested in the president. That's, that's what they wrote. Uh, it's not vested in his advisors. Uh, at the same time, so that a president can make the best, most informed decisions, uh, it's helpful if uh, his advisors uh, can lay out the option, assess their pros and cons, try and give him uh, as much information as uh, is useful to make it the right decision. And uh, we struggled with that process. My predecessors struggled with that process. And it just never seemed to come together. Uh, you could have one decision one day, that decision could be reversed the next day, it could change again by that afternoon. And, uh, you know, this is the sort of thing that makes it hard for the country to have a sustained, consistent policy. It worries our friends and allies who who uh, look for certainty and strength from the United States. Uh, and it tells our adversaries that uh, there are more opportunities uh, for them to try and exploit than perhaps they thought possible before. You spoke to Anthony Scaramucci a couple of weeks ago on the show, and he'd just spoken to General Kelly. he just done that interview for Salt Hawks with General Kelly. And he had said that you never have a better relationship with Donald Trump than when you first enter the White House. 
that it's all pretty much downhill after that. Was that your experience as well? Or was there some uh, peaks and tropes? Well, I think it, uh, it, I stayed for 17 months. I thought of resigning on a number of occasions before I actually did. Uh, I think all of us who have uh, now joined the ranks of alumni of the Trump administration went through their own personal experience. I, I, don't, I don't criticize others for resigning too early or for staying too long. I've been criticized on both ends. Some people say you should have left after the thir- first 30 days because you could see what was happening. Uh, I've been criticized for resigning at all. People say, saying you had a duty to stay there. Uh, this is the sort of uh, uh, trade-off that you, you want to make a contribution. You think you have something to offer. Uh, and if you walk away, you're given, given an opportunity up. At some point, it's to, uh, to, to be a matter of conscience that you just can't do it anymore. And I, I think different people experience that different ways. I think some people did start at the top of the relationship with Trump and go down in a straight line. I think my own experience was a little bit more complicated than that, uh, but it was, uh, uh, it, it was hard to judge as you were living through it. And always important, at least in my case, to have friends from outside the administration come in and give me a reality check. And and that helped me realize, I think when, when, uh, uh, I knew I was I was at the point simply of beating my head against the wall. I didn't feel good about it, and I wasn't accomplishing anything. So that was clear it was time to leave. Hey, guys. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to briefly tell you about our sponsor for this season of The Delve, Spotlight Oral Care, which is an Irish company founded by two Irish dentists. Uh, they're a sustainable company. They're an ethical company. So Long story short about me and my teeth, I had my teeth straightened a couple of years ago. It made me hyper aware of oral care in general. Spotlight Oral Care really recognized that and do products specific for people. And so I've been using their men's teeth whitening strips for a couple of weeks now. I've found them fantastic. I've also been using, which is the the crown and the jewel for me, uh, the Sonic Toothbrush, which is just a phenomenal product. It's got three different settings and it's got a two minute timer. So you're, you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes. I'm using their uh, sensitive toothpaste and you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes and it just switches off. You're like, okay, I've brushed my teeth for the sufficient amount of time. They've also given us a discount code of DELVE25. So if you use the code DELVE25, you'll get 25% off any Spotlight Oral Care products on their site. Back to the show. You know, you talk about reaching out to George W. Bush uh, when, you, when, you, when you were first appointed in the role. At any point after or during, did you reach out to the, pre- the former president for maybe some advice? Well, I, I didn't, uh, in part, uh, I think, because uh, I didn't want to put him in a difficult position. Uh, George W. Bush, in particular, uh, tried to stay out of uh, national politics. He tried not to be uh, talking in public. He didn't talk in public much about Obama, and he didn't talk in public much about Trump. And I just, uh, I, I, I think he felt uncomfortable being viewed as a kind of critic uh, on the outside. Uh, so I didn't want to trouble him for it, but I have to tell you, I think I also know in a sense what I think he would have said, which is uh, get out while you still can. And uh, I didn't, if, if I had had, a, if I had come to a different conclusion, I didn't want to leave him feeling that uh, I had called him, he had given me his advice and then I hadn't paid any attention to him. Uh, w- w- just what do you think of, because I, I know you said you're still going to vote for a conservative, you're going to print the name of a conservative Republican. Uh, on November on November third, you won't vote for Joe Biden. What do you think about groups like the Lincoln Project, and um, you know Rick Rick Wilson, you know, George Conway, these guys who are obviously putting a huge amount of funds into 
attacking Trump pretty much and underlining what they see as his flaws, which is a polite way of putting it. But what do you think of these Republican groups who, are, who really seem to be rounding on the president at the moment? Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, you know, they're doing what their conscience tells them. I, I in a sense, did that by writing the book. I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be joining with them because they have uh, also pretty much endorsed Biden. And, and I respect that. That's, that's their choice. The conclusion is, uh, quite rightly, it will either be Trump or Biden. Uh, so they might as well vote for one of those two. I, I faced that decision uh, as they did in 2016, and I voted for Trump at the time on the theory that it was better than the alternative. Uh, but in, in, in my own conscience, I, I'm not going to vote contrary to my philosophy. Uh, I certainly can't vote for Trump. So that leads me to the third alternative, which is to write in the name of a conservative uh, leader. I know that person will not be elected, but if enough people do that, I think it will show for the post-election period uh, that the Republican Party has got to have a very serious conversation uh, among its members and adherents about what kind of party we want to be going forward. We've got to cut the albatross off from around our neck if Trump loses uh, and, and try and recover from the damage that he's done. More broadly speaking, post-election um, and the news cycle moves so quickly nowadays, it's, it's insane. This is going out in a day or two. Everything could have changed already by then. But what do you think, more broadly speaking, the political discourse is going to be like post-November 3rd if Joe Biden wins, if the polls now uh, continue to hold true and Joe Biden beats him? Because there has, there has been, a, and Trump has stoked it, there has been a lot of culture clashes. People are calling it a culture war. Is it repairable? Do you think the politicians can start talking to each other again in a coherent manner? Well, uh, you know, that a lot remains to be seen. But, you know, if you go back uh, to the period of the Vietnam War, the late 60s, uh, there was a culture war in America at that point. It resulted ultimately in Nixon's resignation. People thought that, uh, that the divisions in the country uh, could not be stitched together, and, and it turned out they were. So I'm optimistic about the long-term future of the country, although I do think there are a number of problems that are going to have to be addressed. I think a lot will depend really on uh, what happens with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, whether things get worse, how, what happens with the economy, whether Republicans keep a majority in the Senate, which is what I'm going to devote uh, my political energies to. I think that's especially important if Trump loses. Uh, to prevent the pressure from the left in the Democratic Party driving Biden to the left. Uh, so a lot remains to be seen. It's a, it's a complex, difficult political uh, uh, era. But I think a lot of people and a lot of people on the Republican side who have been silent uh, in the past uh, several years uh, would welcome Trump's departure from the scene. And I think a lot could be different after that. Do you foresee any circumstance where Trump is you know, maybe so low in the polls that he does begin to get worried and maybe thinks about, I know he has Jason Miller back there now as a senior advisor, but that Steve Bannon maybe comes back into the fold because that speech on July 4th had a lot of echoes of, of Steve Bannon, the type of uh, rhetoric that he would have used previously or would have had Trump use previously. Yeah, I, th I think that's unlikely. I think uh, Bannon may be the only person less in Trump's good favor than I am at the moment. <laughs> Uh, and I don't, I don't really, don't really see him coming back. But uh, look, the president is down in the polls very significantly. But four months to the election is a long time, and uh, a lot could still happen. 
what, what would you have to say? And I don't want to keep you um, much longer, Ambassador. I know you have a busy day. What would you say to those Trump surrogates who are now on Fox News and on some of the other cable networks, uh, you know, backing the president, talking the president up? And, um, you know, would you talk to them about how maybe history will judge them? That's kind of a cliche that's been thrown around a lot now. But what would you say to those? Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you do know some of them, some of those surrogates who are very much uh, bashing the drum for Trump at the moment on national television. Right. Well, I, I know an awful lot of them. I, I think I'd just point out the, that, that uh, as conservatives, we've always put our uh, trust in the philosophy. I mean, I, I go back when I was a young kid handing out leaflets for Barry Goldwater in 1964, not, not because we owed loyalty to Goldwater the person or, or Reagan the person. We owed loyalty because they represented a clear philosophy, and Trump does not. I'm not saying he's a liberal in American terms, but he's not a conservative either. He's Trump. And so I think it's important to distinguish between the person, the candidate on the one hand, and the philosophy on the other. And I'd urge them to consider that uh, before they go on TV the next time. And one final question before I let you go. Uh, Mary Trump's book, uh, book is coming out this week. There seems to be one after another. Melania's assistant has a book coming out as well. Do you think, not just your book, do you, but do you think this, uh, these books will shift the course of the election? Do you think enough people are going to read them? hear about them, see the coverage that possibly it could shift things in Biden's favor by a couple of points? Well, you know, it's, uh, I don't know what's in those books. I haven't spoken to them. I don't, I don't really know what they're going to cover. Uh, but I, I think there is a great unease with Trump. Uh, I think that's certainly true uh, among many Republicans that I know of. He's an intimidating figure. You know, he has that capability to do a two-minute hate, as George Orwell put it, uh, with his Twitter rants. Uh, it intimidates a lot of people. Uh, one might wish they would have stood up uh, a little bit more. But the real test is what happens after the election. And, uh, you know, I, I follow the advice of another good Republican, Abraham Lincoln, with malice toward none, with charity toward all. We've got a responsibility to try and recover from the damage that Trump has done. Ambassador Bolton, I really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. Stay safe.